Scripture reading tonight comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died in the resurrection. Therefore of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what set what was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Be seated. Well, I'm certainly happy to be with you again this evening. And we have a very fine crowd here tonight, a very attentive crowd, as we always do, and I'm very grateful for it. And for those of you who may be visiting with us, we're very happy to have you. I hope that you'll be able to stay long enough for us to become friends. And we continue, as you have surmised from our study this morning, with this passage in Matthew chapter 22. As you turn to that in the pages of your Bible, may I express my appreciation for the beautiful singing tonight for the very fine direction, for the very fervent scriptural prayers, for the reading of the scripture. We're very grateful for these men and appreciative of them who lead us in our worship, and they do so in a, such a very fine way, such a very reverent way. We're always very grateful for that. For those who are following along online, and we have a number who do, we're very happy to have you, and we're thankful for your interest in us and in God's Word. And perhaps it could be that you'll be able to be with us on occasion because even though it's um, a wonderful thing that we can have this medium of studying together over the internet, it's just not like being here in person. And if you can be here in person, I hope that you'll be able to make that and listen to this beautiful singing and participate in that and, and pray along with a prayer leader and follow along in the scripture. We're always very grateful that we have the privilege of doing that. This morning, you and I studied a lesson that came out of Matthew chapter 22, and you can see that in the graphic before you. Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees came asking Jesus a question. Sadducees have a long history. It goes back into the intertestamental period of time. There's 450 years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. And it's in that period of time that you had these religious sects called Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, Zealots, and others. And the Sadducees were more of the well-to-do of the community of the Jewish people. And there's a long history to that. It's an interesting history. It's complex. But here you have the Sadducees who were more of the religious liberals of the Jewish people. The Pharisees were more of the strict ones, whereas the Sadducees were much more liberal in their approach. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. And, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. They had bought into this Greco-Roman view, and yet at the same time they considered themselves religious and they considered themselves Jewish. And so they come to Jesus wanting to stump him, so to speak, and try to come up with a question 
that he can't answer. So they come up with this question that came to us from Deuteronomy chapter 25. It's known as the Leverett Law of Marriage. You and I discussed that this morning. And if one were to take a wife and have no children and they die, then he was able, he is to give his wife to his brother so that they would be able to preserve offspring for that family. This comes up a number of times, comes up in the book of Ruth and various passages like that that help us understand this law which God gave under the old covenant. Because they didn't believe in the resurrection, they thought, well, we'll come up with this very far-fetched hypothetical whereby we'll be able to stump Jesus and show him up in front of the crowd. Of course, you can't do that. Jesus was the master teacher. He was the master respondent. He could answer all of their questions. Now, you could come up with a question I couldn't answer. It would be very easy for you to do that. I wouldn't be able to answer your question, but that's not the case with Jesus. When Jesus was posed with a question, he knew exactly what the answer was. He knew exactly the way to give the answer so that it would be remembered and have the most cogent effect. And so he does so here. He says, "Uh, you don't know, you don't understand because you don't know the Scriptures. He says in verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. In other words, you got two problems here with regard to your matter. This issue that you're holding with regard to the resurrection of the dead, you don't know the Scripture. And you don't understand the power of God and the sovereignty of God. You just don't understand it. So as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And notice the present verbs that are there in which Jesus is saying God is alive. And he's also focusing on the point that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. They're alive on life's other side. God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. And he's saying that they're alive. Now, we looked at that particular phrase and that sentence in particular to try to draw important applications and lessons to us and for our time, verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Notice that God has given us a a revelation. We studied that this morning. And I would shudder to think where we would be if God had never spoken. You know, God is there, and He has not been silent. God has given us His revelation. I'd shudder to think about where we'd be in a dark void if we didn't have God's divine will. And notice also he says, not only has God spoken, but it's been written down. That's the word that's used there in verse 29. It's the word scripture. You're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Word scripture comes to our English language. It means that which has been written down. All scripture given by inspiration of God, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so he's saying, not only has God spoken, but God's spoken word has been written down. And a big part of our discussion this morning has been around the idea of respecting God's word and having reverence for God's word. The very passage that he quotes here comes from Genesis, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, where God spoke from a burning bush to Moses, and he tells Moses, take off your shoes for the ground that you walk on is holy ground. And Moses did what God told him to do. And that's a pretty penetrating question. Are you willing to do what God has told you to do? Are you willing to do what God says about the matter of repentance? 
What about baptism, immersion for forgiveness of sin, Acts 2, verse 38? You willing to do that? He said, now Moses, take off your shoes. Now if you'd have been there, what would you do? You'd have taken your shoes off. But we weren't there. But we have the words. It's been revealed. I can't hear God say it audibly, but I can read it where God has said it through the Scriptures. And then we notice the important point that the Scriptures are not just there. The Scriptures are to be read. And we were trying to emphasize the point. This is a good time to start reading the Scripture. A lot of people have never read the Bible all the way through. Today's a good day to get started. And you'll remember how that I mentioned the insert into our bulletin today how that there's a reading list where you can start reading the Scriptures every day. And by the time you follow that reading schedule, you've read the Scripture all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. In this coming year, the Lord allows this world to continue. But there's a fourth point, and it's a pretty important point. And I have to admit, I haven't always seen it. He says, have you not read what was said to you by God. Now you're wondering, well, now wait a minute. To whom is Jesus referring this to? Jesus is referring to the Sadducees. But when we read that over in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, God said that to Moses. God said that to Moses from the burning bush, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. To whom did God say that? He said it to Moses. But here Jesus said, he said it to you. The scriptures are binding, even on us today, as old as they may be. Still, when he said it to Moses, he was saying it to them. And it was binding on them. The truth of that great scripture, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, is binding on them. And it's still binding today that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A lot of the truth that we read in the pages of the Bible have been said to other people, but it's also binding on us, and that's an important thing that we need to consider. Sometimes people will say, he said that to them, therefore I don't have to honor that or respect that or consider that. For example, you know, if I were outside of Christ and outside the kingdom of God, and Peter comes along and says, Repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, verse 38. And I might come along and say, Well, that, Peter said that to them. He didn't say that to me. But even though he said that to them, he's also saying that to me. It applies to me. Jesus said to the apostles, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. You can read in Matthew 28, you can read in Mark 16, 15, and 16. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture, which is really emphasizing the importance of teaching and sharing and letting others understand this great gospel of Jesus, which is the power of God unto salvation, Romans chapter 1 and the verse of verse 16. But he said it to somebody else. But simply because he said it to somebody else does not mean it does not apply to me. Jesus and God has spoken these particular matters to other people, and they apply to me. And I simply cannot ignore and disregard or minimize what God has said to other people in the pages of the Bible and just sort of not respect it and have the reverence for it that I really ought to have for myself. And a lot of people are that way. They would say, well, he said that to them, but he didn't say that to me. 
You remember what he said to old Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. Through Peter, he told Simon to repent and pray for the forgiveness of sins. He said that to him, but he's also saying that to me. The reason I'm thinking about this point is what Jesus said to the Sadducees when he said, have you not read what was said to you? It was said to you. Even though it was given to Moses, it was said to you as well because it applies to you. And it's binding on you, just as it's binding on me today. And when I read that story about Simon the sorcerer, whose heart was filled with greed, oh, he'd been obedient to the gospel of Christ, but when he saw Peter laying his hands on them and they receiving the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, he wanted that. And he said, I want that. And Peter said, let thy gold and silver perish with thee. You cannot buy this. And he said, pray for me that I may be forgiven of this sin. That was said by Peter to Simon, but it applies to me that when I'm guilty of sin, and I stand before you today telling you, I am. I've committed sins. And I hate that. But I have. But I also know that being a child of God, having repented of sin, have been baptized to Christ and added to the wonderful body of Christ, that there's going to be times when I make mistakes and I need to repent of them and pray and God will forgive me. How do I know that? That wasn't said to me. That was said to Simon. But that applies certainly to me. Turn with me to another passage or two, and this is sort of a, what we might call a hermeneutical type of point. Hermeneutics is the science of interpreting the Bible, and it's a very important matter that we're discussing at the present, and so I need to be very careful and very meticulous about this discussion and this presentation about the matter because there are some elements that need to be recorded, that are recorded, that need to be added to this. I'm in Revelation, and the book is Revelation chapter 2 and verses 1 through 7. And I see this great revelation that is given to the church in Ephesus. There were seven churches of Asia, and this is one of them, and God commends them, and also God chastens them and scolds them for their weaknesses and in an effort for them to do better and to repent. In fact, he says here at the church of Ephesus, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, verse 5, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He's telling that congregation to repent of its negligence, its lethargy. He's telling this apathetic congregation, you've forgotten your first love. And you remember what it was like when you first obeyed the gospel, how that there was sort of a spring in your step and the smile on your face, and you're filled with energy and you were energetic about the matter. But as time went along and the difficulties of life have come and gone, you've sort of grown negligent. Repent of that. Well, somebody comes along and says, well, he didn't tell me to do that. He told them to do that. He's telling me to do that as well. And if it is a congregation of people that is lethargic in their particular de devotion and duty to the Lord, then they need to repent of that particular matter. How would I know? Because he's telling this church to repent. God hadn't changed in that matter. He doesn't want us to be negligent in our responsibility to him. He wants us to be faithful and dedicated, filled with love and zeal and desire to do the great work of God and Jesus Christ. 
And if we haven't and we're not, we need to repent of it. Turn to chapter 3. I'm in the book of Revelation. I'm illustrating a point here with regard to what Jesus said to the Sadducees. God said this to you, Jesus said. Even though he said it to Moses, it applies to you. You see, the Scripture, that which is written down, must be read, and it's binding on future generations. And that's what I'm learning here tonight. I'm learning about a church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. Now, this church at Laodicea was a lukewarm church, and that is detestable before God. People who are lukewarm. He said in verse 15, I know your works. You neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So that because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now I'm reading out of this English Standard Version. It's sort of helpful to me. It helps me understand it. God says, I'm not going to put up with lukewarmness. Sort of an indifferent type of attitude. Not really devoted to the work of God. Sort of a careless type of aspect. But then he gets on down to about this point. It goes on down through verse 23, but... uh, 22, I'd I'd like to read what he says in verse 19 and 20. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, that's an interesting passage. It's Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20. I'll get back to that in a moment. But what I'm really interested in is the fact that he's saying this to the church at the uh, the Laodiceans. But I could come along and say, well, that doesn't really apply to me. He said that to them. No, the Scripture applies to me. The Scripture is binding. He's talking about congregations that need to change. They need to refocus and rethink their work and their responsibility before Jesus Christ. And they need to repent of that. If he's telling them to do that, and I find myself in that same situation spiritually, then I need to do something about it. It's not just a matter of him saying it to them. He's also saying it to me. But we have a wonderful way of trying to minimize the force of that by trying to say in some respects, he's saying that to other people, that really doesn't apply to me. Yes, it does. It's binding. So let me ask a question or two before I get into another phase of my study tonight. And that is, what has God told you to do? Do you understand what God has said about repentance and changing your life for what is right? Luke 13, 3, Acts 17, 30, and 31. Changing my life. That's not an easy thing to do. But it's required by God. I've got to stop the sin. I've got to get out of that. I've got to get rid of the hold that the temptation has on me and reject that and turn my love and devotion now around to God and doing God's will. That is repentance, a change of mind that produces a changed heart that results in a changed life. I now am living the right kind of life. I repent. And unless I do that, I can't be pleasing in the sight of God. Well, he's telling this congregation to repent. They need to change. And individually, I need to change. If I'm on the wrong side of the ledger and if I'm doing things that I really shouldn't be doing, what about, what have God said about baptism? Why, 
I'm to be baptized for the remission of my sin, forgiveness. You and I study that. Are you willing to do that? What about moral purity? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What kind of life am I living? Even though he said that to these particular people of old, still it's being said to me. And what about my attendance and my responsibility to worship? Hebrews 10, verse 25. Somebody could come along and say to try to discount the binding nature of the New Testament. Try to say, well, he was saying that to those people. He's not saying that to me. Yes, he is. It's binding. Just as when God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus said, he is saying that to you because it's still binding. It is God's word. This is an important hermeneutical point that we need to consider. And as I said, that's um, a science of the Scripture, science of trying to understand and trying to interpret properly the Scriptures. So let's delve into this a little deeper. We're going to drill down a little more into this matter. As we've looked at the significance of its importance and the binding nature of the New Testament, not everything is for me. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. You'll recognize the passage there. Paul is giving Timothy some serious responsibility as he leaves him there at um, Ephesus to do the work and continue the work that is to be done. And you'll recognize the passage very well. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I've read for you tonight, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and the verse verse 15, and I said before, you're probably very familiar with it. Now, Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, we have problems. Part of the problem is we have teachers that really don't hold to the truth of these matters, and you're going to have to be skilled in understanding that and handling the Scripture, because your goal is to be approved of God. That's what you want. And to do that, You cannot be negligent in your understanding and in your use of the Scripture. You've got to handle it properly. You've got to be able to put all of these different pieces together so it is understandable and others can learn about it as well. You can't just take passages out of the Bible and then just draw conclusions out of them that God never intended. One of my favorite examples of that, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14 Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, God told Noah to build an ark. Does that mean you're supposed to go build an ark? Somebody comes along and they've just been baptized, they've been added to the church, and and they feel so energetic and they have such enthusiasm and it's it's so encouraging to see people that are that way. And, and you don't want to do anything that would spoil that. You want to enhance that. You want to encourage their desire and their enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, And I say, well, what should I read from the Bible? And somebody says, well, just read it all. It's all good. Well, that's probably a confusing thing for them to do. For example, as a young Christian, they go to the, books of, the book of Leviticus, and they're looking at Leviticus chapters 1 through chapter 7, and they're reading about all those feast days of the Jewish people. And they're wondering in their mind, well, he said it to them. Does that mean he's saying it to me? Or here are all these animal sacrifices that are to be given and, and the regulations that God has placed before the Jewish people on how to handle that. And this person who's just a young Christian, they haven't been studying the Word of God for long, 
And now they read that and they wonder, well, I wonder if God wants me to do that uh, as well. It becomes a confusing matter. And someone reads in Joshua chapter 6 how that God told them to march around the city of Jericho. And he's wondering, should I be doing that as well? It becomes a confusing matter, and rightly so, because we've got to be able to ask ourselves the question, to whom is God speaking, and is that applicable to me today? And a lot of misunderstanding, a confusion, and people have gone away with the wrong idea and the wrong concept, simply because they don't understand this important hermeneutical principle of how to understand the Bible. Now, we've just made an important point how that Jesus said, he said it to you. He did. It applied to them. But does everything apply to me? No, I'm going to have to look and see what does apply to me and what does not. For example, the Bible is talking about, and why don't I just talk a little bit about the Bible? Can I do that? Because I know that I'm speaking to younger ones, I'm speaking to older ones, and to older ones who know these particular matters you know it so very well, but I have younger ones that do not know the Bible as well, younger children that are here tonight, and people who are listening to me over this um, program who really don't understand the Bible very well. So let me talk this very basically about the Bible, and then I'll work myself into answering this rather complex hermeneutical principle that I need to understand. Does this apply to me? Your Bible is divided up into two great divisions. Never forget that. <clears throat> Those who are older, no one understand that these divisions are the Old Testament and the New Testament. Paul makes reference to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14 that there's an old covenant. Word covenant or testament, it comes out from Latin to testament, testamentum, and into the English language is testament. We're used to Old Testament and New Testament. And Paul makes reference to these particular matters. You have five Old Testament books of law. Sometimes we're referred to by a Greek word, Pentateuch. There's a reason why they were associated with the word Pentateuch. But it's the book of law, Torah, the law of Moses. These are the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then you have 12 books of history in the Old Testament. They are amazing books of history. You have a lot of history, Joshua through Esther. You have five books of poetry. They are amazing books. And we're studying Job on Wednesday nights, and we wrestle with the beauty of that passage and the great lessons that it conveys. Then you have 17 books of prophecy. You have five minor prophets and what's come to be called 12 minor prophets, five major prophets and what's come to be called 12 <clears throat> minor prophets and five major, simply because of the size of the book and nothing other than that. The message is still inspired of God. And then you come to the New Testament, and you have 27 books of the New Testament. You have four books that talk about the life of the Lord, Matthew through John. You and I have discussed these things so many times. Then you have one book of history. Compared to 12 in the Old Testament, you have one book of history in the New Testament, and sometimes people refer to it as a book of conversions. It's the book of Acts. A story of conversion after conversion after conversion and what that entails. 
And then you have 21 letters of the New Testament telling us how to live the Christian life and one book of prophecy. As compared to 17 in the Old, you have one in the New, and that is the book of Revelation. And so you have these great books of the Bible. Now, speaking as simply as I know how to the younger ones, this is how I was taught to remember this. Even as a little boy, I still remember it, my Sunday school teacher. She said, the word old has three letters, and the word testament has nine letters. So you put the three and the nine together, and you have 39. Now, in the New Testament, you have the word new, and the word new has three letters, and the word testament has nine letters, and this time you multiply the three times the nine, you have 27. And then you're going to add these together, and it makes 66. I never forgot that. That you can understand the makeup of the Bible and the division that the Bible has. You can understand just how important the Bible really is and be able to turn to those particular matters. Our young people should know the books of the Bible in order. Our young people should know how to spell the books of the Bible. Maybe you don't know how to do that. Maybe you don't know how to spell the books of the Bible. Maybe you don't understand how these books are arranged together. It's time that we learned that and did that. 75% of your Bible is written in the Old Testament. Your Bible was written basically by Hebrew Christians, Hebrew ethnicity, either Old Testament or New Testament, Hebrew Christians. There is one exception to that. That's the book of Luke. Luke was a Gentile, a Gentile physician. Luke actually writes more New Testament scripture than any other person in the New Testament. Now, you thought it was the Apostle Paul. Paul did write more books than anybody else, but Luke wrote more scripture. If you take Luke and Acts together and combine them, you've got more words and more scripture by a Gentile-inspired writer than you have any other writer of the New Testament. Paul wrote more books. As time came along... Verses were added to the Bible. Chapter divisions were added to the Bible. Sometimes this confuses students as they're studying the Bible because they think, well, a new thought begins. Sometimes a chapter division starts right in the middle of a thought. Sometimes a verse division does the same thing. Sometimes several verses have one concept or a whole paragraph. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's confusing to students who don't know the makeup of the Bible, you have to know in order to come away with a right understanding of the Word of God. It was done about 1200 A.D., and uh, it is a very helpful tool, though it is confusing at times. Sometimes those books of the Bible speak to a specific situation, and they stand alone in one respect. For example, the book of Lamentations is being written about the lament which Jeremiah has with the carrying away of the children of Israel in Babylonian uh, captivity, which took place in 586 B.C. That book stands alone. It stands with regard to that particular matter. But then there's another aspect about that in which all these books have a unity about them, a doctrinal purpose and unity that carries itself all the way through from the pages of Genesis all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. That doctrinal unity, that specific purpose statement is to teach man of the glorification of God 
and the salvation of man through Jesus Christ. And every book of the Bible contributes to that basic purpose. It doesn't matter where you are, whether in Genesis. Look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Look at Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. When Shiloh comes, the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. When Shiloh comes, he will be the king. Well, it's telling us ahead of time. God is sending the Savior, which man so desperately needs. And every book of the Bible contributes to that wonderful purpose theme. God's glory and man's salvation through Jesus Christ. There are times when these books stand on their own. Jeremiah and Isaiah. They're talking about the sins of the Old Testament people and the people of Judah, and they're really talking about their sins and the difficulties spiritual that they have with God. But then they have a way of zooming out and going into the future and prophesying about the one who is to come. Isaiah chapter 7 of, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Matthew says, Now this was that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and he shall be called Emmanuel which means God with us. Now that's Matthew 1 and verse 21. And he tells us what Emmanuel means. God with us. And what a great thought that is. God has come in Jesus Christ. Sometimes these books have narrative forms, sometimes they're songs, sometimes they're wisdom literature, sometimes they're just history with regard to the important matter. The longest book in your Bible is Jeremiah. Shortest book in your Bible is 3 John. The next shortest is going to be 2 John. Let's study just a little bit, though, about this important matter. Was it said to me? Or was it said to somebody else? And do I need to apply it? How am I going to decide that? Jesus said to the Sadducees, God said this to you. Well, how am I going to apply that principle now to myself with regard to the Bible? Now, we've gone through a rather brief rundown with regard to what the Bible is all about. Is the command or the statement a general one or is it specific? Is it a particular thing that is to be done with regard to the person that's being spoken to, or is it a general command for everybody at all times? If I say to the son, son, go mow the grass, I think everybody understands that I'm giving a particular command to a particular person. Or I say, daughter, go to the store and get a dozen eggs. Everyone can see that I'm speaking about a particular command to a particular person. That doesn't mean that everybody's to go to the store and get a dozen eggs. It means that she's to go to the store and get a dozen eggs. It doesn't mean that everybody's supposed to go and mow the grass, but it does mean that he is supposed to go and mow the grass. Somebody says, well, I just study the Bible. I believe it all. Be careful here. How can we tell the difference between what God has said to me that applies to me and what God has said to somebody else that does not apply to me. And great problems have come as a result of this. Maybe by illustration I can help us see it. I'm going to turn to Mark chapter 6. And in Mark chapter 6, you're going to see Jesus sending out the disciples two by two. And I'm sure you're familiar with that particular passage. It comes to us in Mark chapter 6, and the passage is about verse 7. And 
He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, say, Stay there until you depart from there now. Is he saying that to them, or is he saying that to me? Does that mean that everybody has to go from house to house, two by two? Did you know that there's a religious denomination that believes that? They're called the two by twos. And it was started in a place called Ireland in the last century. And they believe that if you go, you've got to go in pairs. <clears throat> now, maybe there's some wisdom in that. Maybe there's some practical wisdom involved in that. But that's not the question. The question is, is God telling me to do that? Have I got to do that? No, he's not saying that to me. It's a particular command. It was a command that was given to them. He tells us it was given to the apostles. And they were to do that. After all, Philip went to Samaria. He didn't go two by two. Philip goes and teaches the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. He was very successful in the matter of doing it. Let's go to another one that can illustrate the point. I've got to be careful what the Bible says. To whom is it speaking? Is it speaking to me? Is it speaking to someone else? Now I'm in John chapter 15. In John chapter 15, this came to me, this idea came to me as I was reading and thinking of this particular point, and I'm in verse 16. And he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give it to you. To whom is he speaking there? Before I can really understand John chapter 15 and verse 16, I've got to understand to whom is he speaking. Is he saying that I have been chosen? You did not choose me, but I chose you. Is he talking about me there? Now, let me hasten to say that there's some sense in which the New Testament talks about a Christian being chosen. The Bible talks about it in Colossians chapter 3. The Bible talks about it in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about the apostles. And as you go back down through this particular paragraph and you're looking at its context and looking at it carefully, you're beginning to see he's referring to the apostles there. He's referring to them in particular. He's not necessarily referring to me. Now, as a Christian, am I responsible to bear good fruit? Before God? Absolutely. Galatians chapter 3, verse 5, verse 22 and 23 certainly teaches me to do that. Go back to that John chapter 15 and verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Who's the you there? I have to ask the question, who's the referent to this personal pronoun? It's a plural pronoun. And what's the reference to it? It's the apostles that's referenced there, not me. Now, there certainly is aspects about that. I've been chosen because of my obedience to the gospel of Christ, the grace of God, and my faithful obedience to the same. But he's talking about apostles there and the responsibility that he's giving to them. Here's another one. 
You and I have studied this a little while ago, Jeremiah 29. And we had a series that we were talking about about faith and hope and the realization of this great hope. And the passage that I have in mind is found for us in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, 11. I've seen preachers use this passage. Let's study it together. Based on the hermeneutical principle we're learning tonight. For thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 29 and 10, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know that the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. To whom is he referring? Now, when I read that as a child of God, I see hope written all over that. But he's talking about the exiles in Babylon there. Specifically, he's talking about the people who were carried away into Babylonian captivity and Jeremiah's writing them and encouraging to them. Notice in Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Read the context and see, is this referring to me? Is this referring to them? And it will help me understand that the promise was given to them, though as a Christian, I have great hope, Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. And when I see that God is writing passages of hope to them, I can learn about great hope myself in this wonderful aspect of being a faithful child of God. And one day that hope will be realized. Well, I've got a minute. Let's look at another one. I've got to be careful what the Bible says. Otherwise, I'm going to come away with the wrong idea. And I've got to be careful as to the context and read that whole thing carefully and put it together properly. I'm in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. And here's a passage every one of us have read, and we want to study it a little more carefully tonight. And the verse that I have in mind particularly is verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To whom is he referring? He's referring to the Christian there. This book was written to Christians. But some well-meaning individual who has a great heart and is sympathetic to the desire that he has to do the will of God, he thinks, well, you see there, the Bible says, if I'll confess, God will forgive me of my sins. But he's not speaking to a non-Christian there. He's speaking to a Christian there. And that promise is as real today as it was when it was first given. If we confess our sins, He's faithful to forgive us. And I say tonight, praise God. Thank you. Praise God for that. That as a child of God, when I err and make mistakes, I can go before my Heavenly Father and ask for forgiveness and know that as my sincere request and repentance is received by God, I'll receive complete cleansing and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. But I've got to understand, to whom is that being said? It is being said to Christian people who need repentance and who need to turn back to God. 
one more. And that was the passage that I had in mind a moment ago. It's Revelation chapter 3 and the verse verse 20. And you'll remember I was talking about the church at Laodicea and the problems that they'd had, that they'd left their first love. They, well, that was Ephesus, but they were lukewarm in Revelation chapter 3. In the verse, verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He's talking about fellowship being restored. To whom was he speaking? He was speaking to that church. This particular book was written to the seven churches of Asia, and at this particular juncture, he's emphasizing the point, you need to repent, and I'm standing at the door, and if you'll knock, I'll open the door, and restoration of fellowship shall be received. This passage is referring to the church at Laodicea. But notice what else it says in that verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, it doesn't matter if it's just the church at Laodicea or whatever congregation it might be throughout the ages. If anyone hears his voice, if anyone will listen to the word of God and repent and submit to the divine will of God, Jesus stands prepared to restore the fellowship that is breached by means of an unfaithful life whether it be a congregation of people or whether it be the individual, that fellowship can be restored. And now in turn, one can be a faithful child of God once again. Well, there's a lot more to this than we have time to develop. But we can surely see an important principle that Jesus is giving us. And that is just... As God said it to Moses, that was binding on the Sadducees, and that's binding on me. You see, brethren, God has spoken. And let's give devotion and dedication to understanding what God has really said. God has spoken through the written revelation known as the Scripture. That revelation is to be read and studied. And that revelation, when read and studied, when it applies to me, is binding. I've got to live by it to be pleasing in the sight of God. To determine if it is binding to me, I've got to ask the question, to whom is he referring to? And many, many times he's referring to me. And when I read that Bible passage, I'm thinking of myself. I'm not thinking of you. I'm thinking of me. I'm thinking of the realization, I need this. I need this encouragement. I need this help to live this life, to live through this sin-saturated world so that I can come to the end of my days pleasing in the sight of God. I need the instruction that tells me to repent of my sins and confess my faith. I need the instruction that encourages me to be baptized for the remission of sins and to be added to those people called the church of the New Testament, the people of God, the way. If I've been unfaithful, I need the instruction that says, Jim, you need to repent and you need to repay, re, and pray so that God will forgive you. And when you confess your faults to God, 1 John 1 verse 9, He'll forgive you. 
And I'm so thankful. I'll say it tonight. I've said it many times. I don't understand why everyone is not a Christian. I don't understand it. God has spoken. Let us give respect and reverence to His Word and be obedient to it. And I'm asking you to do that tonight, if need be. Won't you come? While together we stand and while we sing. I pray, my sister.